Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Christian Church Podcast. Rocky is a community of believers who want to know Jesus and love like Him. Let's take a listen to this week's message. Man, church, good to see you. It's good to see you in the room, Niwak Campus. Great to see you with Frederick Campus. Love you guys, and good to have you join us live, and then everybody online. Man, it's good to have all three groups together. I was sitting in my car about three weeks ago, and we were coming out of Easter, and I was sitting there talking to my daughter, and we're driving. It's my 15-year-old, and I asked her a question. I said, hey, we talked about the resurrection today, and we gave a few things about the resurrection, but if somebody actually asked you, if somebody asked you whether or not you believe that the resurrection is true, like, what would you say? And she's like, well, obviously, Dad, I'd say yes. And I said, well, what evidence do you have to back up what you believe? Well, it's interesting, in the Easter message, if you remember, we, we talked a little bit about the importance of the resurrection. And we gave one thing. We talked about eyewitnesses. And so she quickly is like, well, Dad, there's eyewitnesses of it. And I was like, well, yeah, that's what we talked about. But what else would you actually say? And if you're a kid in the room, just be glad you don't have a pastor as a dad, all right? asking all those questions and stuff. But I was asking her, and we had this great conversation, and she looks back at me, and she's like, well, Dad, what would you say? And she was just deflecting the question a little bit. She's like, yes, I believe in this, but when it really comes down to the evidence, like, what would you say the evidence actually is? And so let me flip the question to you for a second. We're in this series called Unbelievable. We're talking about how the key component of Christianity, like everything our faith is built upon, is what we celebrated on Easter. That's why a third of the world's population gathered on Easter Sunday to celebrate Jesus because of the resurrection. If somebody looked at you and said, how do you actually know that's true? What would you say? Would you say, let, let me call my pastor real quick? <laughs> Let me grab a Lee Strobel book. Let me, let me do something. And Lee Strobel's a great um, apologist that's written some great books, Case for Faith, Case for Christ. Or would you have some things to say, I believe it. And here's why I believe it. Lifeway Research did a study. And this study was in 2020, so it was very recent. And it was with just Christians and talking about the, the state of faith across our nation. And they studied Christian adults of all ages, and they asked this question, do you believe the resurrection is true? Like the biblical accounts that are given by the eyewitnesses, the gospel writers, do you believe it happened as stated in the gospels? 66% of Christians, so two-thirds, two-thirds of Christians adults said, man, I believe it happened exactly the way they wrote it. Now, it's interesting, that's Christian adults. Two-thirds sounds like a pretty good number, 66%, but there is another third of people who claim to be Christians who say, I believe in Jesus, like I believe this thing happened, that actually stepped back and said, you know what, I actually have some doubts, or I don't believe it. I believe he's God, but I don't believe that he rose from the dead. Let's keep going. 18 to 34-year-olds. So take a generation, younger generation, 18 to 34-year-olds, 59% who claim to be Christians, who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, said that they do not believe or they have questions about the resurrection. Here's the problem with that. Christianity is based upon a foundation of the resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you can't believe in Christianity. Because as our guest speaker said this last week, that Christianity led up to, our faith leads up to the cross. The cross was the moment at which our sins were paid for. God came in human form to be willing to give his life for us. But the resurrection is the one who affirms he is who he says he is. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, 
how can you believe in Christianity? And so my question to you this morning is just, if you're a person who believes, how do you know that what you believe is true? If you're a person who walks in the door or sitting at home or you're sitting there at the Frederick campus and you're like, well, man, I believe, but I still have some doubts. Here's what you need to know. If you believe, but you have doubts, or if you don't believe because you have doubts, man, Rocky's a place where we've always said, you can belong before you believe. Like, like you can have doubts. It's okay to have doubts and to walk into this place, but here's the thing. If you have doubts, man, it, I would not be doing my job. We would not be doing our job as a place of faith to leave you in your doubts and not give you any reason to actually challenge those and question those because here's what actually happens. Timothy Keller says this. He's a great theologian, great writer, author, pastor, teacher, uh, so well read and so well studied. He said this. He said that most Christians are made to defend their beliefs while doubters aren't made to defend theirs. Think about that. We say all the time. People say all the time, well, how is you, do you as a Christian, how can you believe in that? Well, how many times do we turn around and say, hey, you as an atheist or you as a doubter, how can you believe in that? Like what evidence do you actually have to confirm your doubts? Do you have more faith in your doubts or do you have more faith in the possibility that Jesus is who he says he is? He goes on to say this. He says, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts and then ask yourself what reasons you have to actually believing it. This seems fair and intellectually serious. If you doubt the resurrection, should you not also doubt your doubts? Man, if you have doubts today, it's okay. Every single person in this room who is a person of faith, whether they can defend it or not, who believes that Jesus is who he says he is, who believes in the resurrection, every single one of us at some point have had doubts. Like if you step back from the, and you just say, this whole thing's based on God becoming man, living for 33 years with us in all the muck and the junk that we live in, the sin and all of that, just so that he could go to the cross, pay for our sins, bring us back together with God. He was buried in a tomb and then he rose from the dead on the third day. That's an unbelievable story. But it's what our faith is based upon. And so what I want to encourage you with today, if you're sitting online today and you've got doubts, if you're sitting in the rooms today and you've got doubts, I want to challenge a little bit today. It's okay for you to have doubts, but I want to challenge you to doubt your doubts this morning by giving you some evidence, giving you some evidence for the resurrection. And you might say, some of you sitting here might say, well, that's great, Sean. You're a pastor. You're going to give me a whole bunch of thoughts. Actually, eight years ago, there was a guy named Lee Strobel who came. I mentioned his name earlier. Lee Strobel was a self-professed atheist. He was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So well-known journalist, well-read, tons of education behind him, very successful journalist and editor. Well, he was, he was an atheist, and he describes his life. He said, man, I, I lived an incredibly immoral life. The reason he stood on this stage was because his wife became a Christian. All of a sudden, she, she met a nurse, a friend that she had, and this person began to share with her about her faith. And, and his wife actually came to a point, she said, I, man, I couldn't deny it. I believed it was true, and I was seeing how it was changing my friend's life. And so I jumped in, and I became a Christian. And she came home, and she tells this to Lee Strobel, who is an atheist, who lives a very immoral life, who's like, I was against anything Christianity could be about. He said the first thing that popped into his mind was the word divorce. 
He's like, I'm sitting here thinking divorce, but I love my family. I love my daughter. I love my wife. And so he decided that he would take a weekend. This cracks me up. He's like, what I need to do is I need to disprove this cult, he said, that she became a part of. I'm a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. How hard could this be? So I'll take the weekend and disprove Christianity. Well, it took a little bit more than a weekend. The reason he stood on the stage eight years ago is because Lee Strobel took two years. He took two years and he went and he met with experts and scientists and leaders and theologians and historians and experts on all these different issues, resurrection included. And he put all his evidence together and he sat down and he finally came to a point, he says, it would take more faith for me to be an atheist than it would to be a Christian. And he became a Christian, and you may know the name Lee Strobel because he's one of the most famous apologists out there. He's written a series of books. His evidence compiled over two years went into three books called The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, and The Case for Creation. And in The Case for Christ, he takes the resurrection and he tears it apart, and he stood on the stage, and my wife after, it was actually, actually not just after, but it was actually a, a month ago, we were talking about this and talking about needing to provide some evidence. She's like, man, you need to go back and watch that because I can still remember the four E's he gave. Just broke it down into four things. I met with our elders this morning and one of our elders like, I can remember this, this, and this that he said. And so here's what I just wanna be open with you about today. What I'm gonna share today is not a pastor who's standing up there saying everything you think they want to say because I'm a pastor. I'm gonna share with you the things that Lee Strobel said eight years ago on the stage after being an atheist, a skeptic, who hated Christians, who hated Christianity, who set out to disprove it, who stepped up and said, man, after I surveyed the evidence, here's what I come up with. And here's what I hope will happen. If you're a doubter, it's okay. But I hope it'll, it'll give you four things that'll cause you to doubt your doubts cause you to go a little bit further and maybe give you a framework to be able to start investigating and understanding and be able to come to a verdict of, is this a fairy tale or is this truth? And if you're sitting here and saying, man, I've read the books and I've read all this stuff. Well, here's what I would say to you. If you're a Christian who is a believer, this will give you a framework of four things that when people sit down with you and say, how do you know what you believe? You'll have something to answer because 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says this. 1 Peter 3, 15 says that, always, that we must always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. And so for you and me, I think we ought to be able to give that. And this will give you a framework that helps because here's the thing. This whole thing's based on the resurrection. And if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. If it's not, here's what it means. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Here's what the writer of 1 Corinthians is saying. He's saying, you can investigate this. Like, just like you can investigate any other historical writing or happening out there, you can investigate this. There's actual proofs out there. And if you investigate it and you come to a point where you're saying, this isn't true, then you're fully justified of walking away and not believing in the faith because it's not true. If the resurrection is not true, none of it's true. But if you investigate it and you find that the evidence leads to it's true, then what that means is it's all true. 
And if it's all true, that ought to change us, ought to change our lives, it ought to change everything about us. And so here's what I want to do, and what I actually did with my daughter, is I recounted those four E's. And I want to give you those four E's to give you a framework to have some evidence behind what you actually believe. So let's just jump in. Now, I'll be honest right now. This may seem a little classroomish, all right? It will, but sometimes we've got to have the evidence presented to us in a form of just saying, okay, here it all is. And so I'd encourage you, if you've got something to write on, get it out. Take some notes. If you don't have some notes, something to write with, get your phone out. And take it, because this stuff is gold, it's helpful, and I think it will encourage you. First E, execution. Why execution? Well, obviously, crucifixion was execution, right? Well, the reason the first E is execution is because there are some skeptics that have a tendency to say that Jesus wasn't dead after the crucifixion. So if you jump in and you look at history, you look at skeptics, you look at atheists, there are some atheists that will say there's this thing called the swoon theory, which the swoon theory, in short, is this idea that Jesus was crucified on a cross, brutal execution, but in the midst of that somewhere, when it says in scripture that he cried out his last and he breathed his last, they will say he didn't die, he just passed out. Now, if you step back in and you look at what happens in crucifixion, we'll talk about that in a second. It's a little hard to believe, but some skeptics will say the swoon theory is he just passed out. They took him off the cross, they put him in the tomb, and then somehow he revived. And somehow Jesus, I don't know, communicated through the stone that had been rolled over, whatever, somebody rolled it away, and he came out and he was alive. He was never dead. Now, here's the issue with that. If you step back in and you go to historians, you go to legal authorities, you go to any credible academic institution, what they'll say is the evidence is crazy. There's a crazy amount of evidence historically that goes against that point of view. Now, if you jump back into history, here's what you find. You'll find because of time amounts and all that, it is hard to find more than one to three, more than one to three sources to confirm a historical fact that happens centuries ago. So keep that in your mind, one to three, all right? For the evidence that comes from historians and scholars alike, from historians that was passed down, that was written down, we have first century evidence. Like we have it in the gospels. We have multiple evidences that are giving, but yours as a skeptic, you're going, but that's the Bible. Get this, outside of the Bible, we have five sources outside the Bible confirming confirming the death of Jesus. Very credible sources. Step back, Josephus. Josephus was a historian that was hired by the Roman government that was to take down the history of the Jewish tradition, the Jewish nation. So you have Josephus. You have Tacitus, early historian. You have Marabar Serapion. You have Lucian, all historians. You even have the Jewish Talmud, the Jews who were against Jesus. The Jewish Talmud that actually records the death and the burial, the death of Jesus. Here's the thing, it is such a historically true fact or a historically researched fact that if you walked into any credible academic place, school, college, whatever, and you said, I don't believe Jesus died, they'd laugh you out of the place. There's so much historical reference to it. Here's another thing, the American Medical Association did a peer review. They did this journal where they took a bunch of scholars and medical doctors had them look at the inside and outside of the New Testament evidence, search it all, then write down the facts, come to a conclusion, and here's what this peer review said. said, clearly, 
The weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. He's dead. There's all kinds of theories out there. But what history comes back and says is there was a crucifixion, an execution, and a death. You can even one-up that. Take what the medical association said, you can one-up it with this, that atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Luderman says this, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. How many ancient religious New Testament historical facts does an atheist New Testament scholar say are indisputable? The death of Jesus is one of them. We've got an execution. The second E is this, it's early. What do you mean by early? We have early accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. Why is that important? Well, historians actually talk about how a lot of times what happens is there, there is a legend that develops and there's a lot of skeptics out there that will say, you know what that resurrection thing? And that resurrection thing, is, it's just a bedtime story. Like it's a legend that developed out of stories after stories after stories being told over years that developed into this legend. Here's the thing. Studies have been done to show that it takes over two generations. It takes over two generations to actually have something develop into a legend that actually wipes out historical fact. So what do we have that helps with that? We actually have a creed that has been preserved by early Christians that writes down the actual beliefs of Christianity that outlines what happened around the resurrection, that outlines who witnessed the resurrection, resurrection and who Jesus actually appeared to, who the eyewitnesses were, not just people of faith, also opponents and skeptics. And how do we have this creed? Well, the creed is actually preserved within the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, which is interesting because the Apostle Paul used to be Saul. Saul was a persecutor of Christians. On his way to Damascus, he has a vision of, he runs into the resurrected Christ. He's just executed Stephen, one of the deacons in the church. He's just obtained warrants for people's arrest that he's going to Damascus, a town where Christians live, that he's going to imprison men and women and children and have them executed for the faith. Been paid by the Jewish leaders to go do this. And all of a sudden, about a year after Jesus' death, he's on the way to Damascus. He has this vision of the risen Jesus and boom, he believes. He believes and he goes back into Damascus. What happens is actually 22 years 22 to 25 years after the resurrection and the death, Paul writes down this creed and sends it in a letter that we call 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was a letter that the apostle Paul, who becomes this great missionary, starts all these churches, sends to a church he started in Corinth. 22 to 25 years later. Now, if you want to read the, if you want to read the creed, Go to, just write down chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3, and it outlines it. even tells names of people, apostles, and those who saw the resurrection. But what's important about it is that 22 to 25 years after, we might think, man, that's like, that's a long time. Maybe legend could have developed within that time, right? It actually takes much longer than that. We said two generations, but here's the thing. 22 to 25 years in historical investigation terms is actually really good when you consider 
that the biographies of Alexander the Great, the first two that are considered, considered generally reliable, were written 400 years after his death. And everybody's like, those stories are true. This creed is given in 1 Corinthians. And here's the thing about the creed. When you step into the creed and you look at it, you realize in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that it was actually given to the people. Paul's just repeating something that he gave to them or he received, he says, and then gave to them much earlier. How do we know? We already said, Paul was Saul. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was on his way to Damascus. He receives a vision of the risen Lord, experience with, he experiences the risen Christ. He becomes a Christian. He goes back into Damascus and he meets with some of the apostles. And many theologians believe that in that point, just a year after Jesus' death and resurrection, that's when Paul receives the creed. So it's already established. The beliefs are already there. We have this written down, recorded creed that's being passed between all of the Christian believers in the churches saying, this is what happened. Now, some theologians will say, no, it wasn't then. But it almost gets even better. You see, what happens is three years later, between three and six years later, Paul writes in the book of Galatians that three to six years later, he went back to Jerusalem and he sat down with two guys who were mentioned in the creed. He sits down with Peter and he sits down with James. Both guys that Jesus were, he was, they were eyewitnesses. He sat down with them and the Greek word it uses is hysteria. And the idea is it's an investigation. It says they sat down together and they began to compare stories. And they said, what happened? What did you see? And what did you see? And what did the apostles see? And what did you experience? And they investigated this, and some believe that's when the creed was given to the Apostle Paul. Now, no matter what happened, between one to six years, not enough time for legend to develop, between one to six years, these Christians were already giving their lives for this creed that they had seen the risen Christ. They had written down what they had seen, and this creed was being circulated to the rest of people. Now, you take Alexander the Great and 400 years, and everybody's like, oh, that's true. You take the resurrection of Jesus, and most people don't investigate their doubts to find out if there's anything actually that backs this thing up. And when we begin to look at it, we understand there is a ton. James Dunn, he's one of the foremost experts in this area. He says this tradition or this creed, we can be entirely confident was formulated within months of the death of Jesus. Why is that important? Because there is not enough time. There's not enough time for legend to develop. These people right here stake their life on something that they knew from the beginning. We have a newsflash that goes all the way back to the very beginning that says this is true. We have an execution and we have early reports of a resurrection. Third word is this, it's empty. The historical record says that Jesus' body was given to Joseph of Arimathea. It's placed in a tomb and that it was there for three days. And we talk about how he was raised from the dead. Now, some critics actually believe the body was never really in the tomb. Some critics will actually say, well, man, crucifixion victims, man, they were worth nothing to the Romans. So what they did is they took them off the cross and they threw them to the birds and the dogs and the wild animals and they just ate them. If you look at the digesta, 
The digesta was actually a summary, summary of Roman law and procedure. The digesta actually speaks to crucifixion and that crucifixion victims could be buried. In 1968, we found one. In 1968, we found one with his legs crossed with a spike, still the spike that they were nailed to the tree with, still wedged between their ankle bones. A couple weeks later, there was, there was more found, and they continue to find resurrection victims that show we have archaeological evidence that people who were um, crucified, many of them, were buried. But here's the thing. When you step back and you talk about the empty tomb, that we have an empty tomb, the most convincing piece of evidence that we have is that the enemies of Jesus actually admitted it was empty. Like when when the disciples kind of came out and word started circulating that there was a resurrection and that Jesus had come back to life, what the religious leaders that were against Jesus, like the opponents, what they didn't say Well, so just go open the tomb. Go look in the tomb because you're going to find a body. You see, because that wasn't the question. Everybody knew there was an empty tomb. The question began to be is like, how did it get empty? Like that's been the big question of history is how did it get empty? And so what they did say is when you come back to the opponents, what they did say is they were like, somebody comes to them and says, well, how's the tomb empty? They're like, um, uh. The disciples stole the body? I mean, what is that right there? Seriously, that's like if you're a teacher. If you're a teacher, you get this. Somebody comes to you, third grader, fifth grader, seventh grader, junior in high school like me, and says, the dog ate my homework, right? What is that? You know you don't have your homework, but you're trying to give an explanation of why you don't have your homework, and it's a cover-up story. See, everybody knew the tomb was empty. And all they would have had to say to put the onus on the disciples is to say, man, if the disciples, man, go check it out. But they said the disciples stole the body. They made up a story. And a story that just began to circulate, but a story that died in the evidence of the resurrection. You see, when you implicitly or explicitly, explicitly, When you look at the evidence surrounding what happened, the supporters and the opponents of Jesus claimed the same thing. The tomb was empty. It's never been the question of history. The question has been, how did it get empty? And if you just wanna go through with the evidence and say, okay, well, how did it get empty? Somebody stole the body. Is it the Romans? Look at the usual suspects. Is it the Romans? No, Jesus was a revolutionary to them. And we have evidence upon evidence and story and historical data on historical data of how the Romans would take Jewish revolutionaries and they would cut their heads off, they would execute them, they would crucify them, they would burn them at stakes. They got rid of revolutionaries. Romans wanted Jesus dead. Jewish leaders, they wanted Jesus to stay dead because he was infringing on their territory. There's no way they're gonna steal the body. And the disciples, they didn't have the means They didn't have the motive. They didn't have the opportunity. And every one of them is running anyways. You see, when you come back, the only credible explanation for the empty tomb is that the body came back to life. You see, we have an execution 
We have early reports and we have an empty tomb and it just keeps building upon itself. And the fourth E is this, it's eyewitnesses. It's the one that my daughter said. It's the one that we talked about on Easter Sunday that we have, look at this. When you talk about eyewitnesses, we have over a period of time that Jesus appears alive in dozens of instances to over 515 people. If you check out the accounts, the historical accounts inside and outside of scripture, we have the accounts of Jesus appearing to over 515 people, skeptics, doubters, as well as believers, men, women. He appears at daytime, at nighttime. He appears with groups. He appears with individuals. People talked to him, touched him, ate with him. And they recorded it. And you remember when I said earlier that usually it's surprising if you have, between, have more than one to three sources to confirm a historical fact. For the conviction of the disciples that Jesus rose from the dead, we have no fewer than nine ancient resources, ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming the disciples' conviction. And here's what I think is amazing. Is these once cowardly followers of Jesus who when the death happened, when the execution happened, like when the crucifixion happened, they all ran for their lives. They hid. They went in, hid in an upper room. Some of them went back to their old vocations. They said, man, we're getting out of here because they're going to do it to us next. Within a week, within a week, they go from being cowardly and saying, we don't believe this, to their entire lives changing to it becoming the drumbeat they beat for the rest of their life, to it becoming the thing that they actually give their lives to and for. Every one of them, every one of them barring Judas and barring John, who ends up Judas who does what Judas did, and then John who actually is, is exiled on the island of Pat- Patmos and lives out the rest of his days, the rest of the disciples and many of the followers, many of the eyewitnesses give their lives as martyrs for the faith. How do you go from cowards to courageous? How does somebody not, how does somebody not let it go if the disciples stole the body or if it's not true or something happened, how does somebody not let that out? You see, these were eyewitnesses that it changed their life and those eyewitnesses just shared their account and those eyewitnesses accounts have changed the world. You have to admit, even if you doubt, that throughout history, This thing has just grown larger and larger and larger and been more and more unstoppable throughout history to the point at which Easter Sunday we gather with a third of the world to celebrate the resurrected Jesus, which we believe is true. Chuck Colson, if you know that name, one of the greatest apologists, Chuck Colson was actually in the Nixon administration, went to jail for Watergate. Sitting in jail, he connects with the chaplain. He becomes a Christian. He actually, after being in jail, starts one of the most favorite prison ministries, starts the Colson Center. I mean, the guy becomes an incredible Christian leader throughout the last few decades since passed away. Here's what he said. I love this. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. 
You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Four E's. And you step back and, and there is some evidence, but you may have listened to those four E's this morning. You might say, you know, Sean, I, I, still, I, I still have some doubts. I don't think I've got all the evidence I want. And here's what I'd say. As much as I've studied this, as much as I've read about this, as much as Elise Strobel has studied and read about this, as much, I can say this, there are still sometimes some doubts that creep in. And there might be some moments in the times of seeing suffering happen in our world. It might be moments when I turn on the TV and see all the junk that's happening in our world. I might say, man, I, sometimes I have some doubts. I might want a little more. I might not have all the evidence right at my fingertips sometimes. But here's the deal. I got all the evidence I need. I look through those four things. I look through many, many more things. I study through I look at God's evidence of his transformational power in my life and in my family's life and generationally for my family. And I'm telling you, I believe. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I believe that he rose from the dead. And if he did rise from the dead, I believe it changes everything. Like it would be a disaster if Jesus rose from the dead, that he is who he says he is, that he backed up his claims to be the son of God. If that is true, it would be a disaster if it didn't change our lives. And for you, if you sat there today and you're saying, man, I'm, I have some doubts. Even if the four E's that I just shared with you today, even if it doesn't cause you to step across the line and say, I believe it should at least cause you to investigate more, to get Lee Strobel's books and to read those books, to find out more and to look and to say, Jesus, I'm gonna go on this search just like Lee Strobel did. I'm gonna go on this search and would you just, if you're real, prove it to me. And I believe he will. Lee Strobel went on a two-year two-year investigative process and a guy who was trained to do these kind of things and he gets done with that investigative process he's sitting there in his study and he talks about how he just kind of had all these notes in front of him and he's just so much information overwhelming he finally pushes it away and he's like i gotta come to a verdict and i love what he says on this stage right here, he said this. He said, in the light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than it would take to become a Christian. You may have doubts. We all have doubts, but I just want to encourage you to doubt your doubts. And to give God a chance and to have him show you, to allow him to show you the truth of what's in the gospel and the transformational power because the resurrection power, man, it talks about this. It talks about those who believe in the resurrection, that that power wasn't just for Jesus. It says that power is available to transform our relationships, transform our habits, transform our reality, our life, our families, our character, and to give us hope for eternity. Lee Strobel said this, he said, it's not just enough to believe. So you can believe all of that. You can believe that Jesus is who he said he is. You can believe he came back from the dead, all of it. But here's what it says in scripture. He, he says, John 1, 12, he says, yet to all who received him, 
to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, there's a formula right there. It just says, if you believe, you can receive. It's not just enough to believe, though. What we must do is put our life out there and simply say, God, I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive your salvation. I want to see, receive forgiveness of my sins. And, and I would encourage you, if you're to a place that you say, I, I believe this thing, then the thing that you do and what scripture talks about, we simply get on our knees and we just say, God, I, I am guilty of a lot of things. I've messed up, I've got sin in my life, but that's what you came for. And so I believe in the cross, but I, more importantly, I believe in the resurrection. Would you allow your resurrection power to be in me, to clean me, to wipe away my sin and to bring me back together with God? And we pray that prayer. And the Bible says that those who have placed their faith in Jesus responded. They believe, they confess him as their savior, they repent of their sins and they're baptized. We are saved by our faith. But that resurrection thing is incredibly important. And the Bible says that the baptism is the picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. We are saved by our faith, but we respond to God by being baptized, by participating in that. I want to encourage you. If you need to come down front after the service and you need to connect with somebody on our prayer team and say, I want that, do it. If you're online, I want to encourage you to go to rocky.church slash this week and respond right there. And if you're sitting there saying, well, I've never been baptized. Man, two weeks, March 2nd, we got a baptism celebration. You should do it because if the resurrection is true, man, it changes everything. If, it not, if it's not, it does too. But I can tell you, I'm confident that I got all of the evidence I need. For you, do you believe it? And if you believe it, are you ready to respond to it? Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful for a guy like Lee Strobel, for his story, for a story that comes to just saying, man, I was an atheist and a skeptic, but I surveyed the evidence. I did it with the intent to disprove it. And then he came to believe it. Father, I pray for the person who's watching this struggling, help them to remember that it's okay to doubt. It's a place where you can work that out, but it's not okay to stay there. At some point, we've got to make a decision on what the verdict is. And Father, I pray that you will make yourself known to each and to every one of us. God, show, it, show us whether or not it's true. God, I believe it's true. And Father, I celebrate Jesus right now, just that he was willing to give his life for us because of his love. And Father, we love you. And I pray on, in two weeks on May 2nd that there will be a bunch of people that will step forward and say, it's time. I want to make that decision. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.